0: Well, as we've finished the book of Ruth and are getting ready to start John, I have the I have the privilege of having that sermon that's sort of in the midst of it and, and praying, saying, Lord, where where would we go this one week? A, a standalone a sermon that stands alone by itself in a sense. Um again having just come out of Ruth and, and the story of Ruth and Boaz and praying through that and saying, Lord, where where would we go? What do we need? What do we need to hear from you? Looking at the, the cultural landscape of Ruth and what's going on there, I, I can't shake just how close those parallels are with where, where Israel was in its time in history, because Ruth takes place, of course, in Judges. It's a time where at the end of Judges we read that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And there's so many parallels with that and where we are as a culture now. And living in a in a country and a culture that has a background of history uh, of Christianity but denies its roots, wants to borrow the fruits from it, but denies where its substance comes from and and we 're in the midst of of that, and living as a Christian in that context, of course, we went through uh, uh, through the story of Ruth, we see Ruth and Boaz standing out as people of integrity, people of, in, of honor and looking at them and saying, I want to be like that. I want to be like Ruth. I want to have faith like that. I want to have that genuineness of character. I want to be an honorable man like Boaz was and seeing those things. And so I, I want to ask the question this morning, what does it mean to walk with integrity when everyone else is around you and doing what is right in their own eyes? How do, we, how do you as a Christian walk with integrity in a time of moral confusion? Because, again, that's, that's the cultural landscape of, of where we are. What does it look like in, in today's culture when everyone does what's right in their own eyes? Because that probably looked a little different for the Jews in their time, but I think there's a lot of parallels, okay? Because in, in the moral flux of, of today, um, morality is fluid, Right, it's very, very fluid. It can be manipulated. I, it's sort of like v- virtual reality. I mean, you ever, if you've ever watched a movie with virtual reality or played video games that are virtual reality, they're as close to reality experientially uh, um, that, that we can get, but they're not reality. That's the whole V part, right? It, it's virtual. It's as close to reality as you can get, but it's not reality. What's the difference there? Well, reality interacts with you. Virtual reality, you interact strictly with it, but but you can cut it off, right? It it doesn't actually actually interact with with you, okay? And you know what I mean by you? Your your essence, your your substance. You, as a person, it's out there. And and culturally, this is where we are. We're our our culture has said, well, morality is not an objective truth. It's not something that's out there that that interacts with us we can mold it we can shape it we can manipulate it and I'll get kinda more into that uh, you know later but that's that's where we are it's a virtual moral reality but as Christians we say well no that's not true and so now here's where the rubber meets the road is going into our relationships and interacting with people in our lives who who feel that yeah we can mold and we can manipulate morality well we'd say, no, that's, that's not true. And this is where it comes into our relationships. So today I hope that the sermon is very, very practical because we're going to talk a lot about relationships. and, and I hope that I can, I can reach you on a level with maybe you're where I am in relationships and you're, it, there's, there is a struggle there. and it's becoming a little more clear, uh, th- wh- what does it mean to be a Christian and hold the truths of God? with humble integrity in our relationships with other people. I've titled this sermon, Walking with Humble Integrity, from Psalm 26. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through Psalm 26 and look at the things that David sort of unpacks here, or, or what he says, and we're going to unpack them as we go through. Everybody kind of tracking with me so far? I feel like I've got some some reverb here. Am I good? Here? I think? Okay. Um, All right, so Psalm 26 just a brief context in this there's not a lot given uh historically on on the circumstances that surround this a lot of commentators believe that this was david wrote this at a a time when um uh, of absalom's of uh, rebellion um this was when david was sort of he was in hiding he you know he was in hiding and there was just a lot of oppression upon him um, that's what a lot of commentators believe, but there's no real evidence to clearly say that's exactly what it is. But it's clearly at a time when, when something has happened and, and David is needing to be justified. That, that something's happened in his life and he's crying out to, to be justified. Okay, um, Where basically David's saying, separate, Lord, separate the faithful from the impious. Separate the genuine from the pretenders here, and I'm claiming to be in the genuine camp. I'm claiming to be in the faithful camp. You know, Lord, do your separating work here. That's that first word in verse one. Vindicate me, judge me, Lord. He's calling. He's calling calling God into the courtroom of humanity, and in the midst of his relationships, and saying, Lord. Lord, Lord, judge here. Separate truth from error. Separate righteousness from unrighteousness. Because I need that. I'm feeling the weight of that in my in my relationships. And I need you to I need you to vindicate. I need you to judge. Now here's a crucial point that, that just pops up right in that first verse. Judge me, Lord. Because God for David, God was the final authority for what's right and what's good, not man. God was the final authority. And so that's crucial for us in our relationships, that moral truth begins with God. Now, it's one thing to say that as a concept. It's quite another thing to flesh that out in your relationships with other people, at work, in your home. When, when truth comes to bear and something happens and, and you have to say, well, do I just ignore what God has said or, or, or do, I, do I say something? Do I, do I speak up? How how what do I what do I do with it? If God is the standard for moral truth, it has implications for our relationships and how we handle those relationships. Um, it governs the trajectory of our relationships. It, we could say, well, he's in charge, so we'd better listen to him, rather than, well, your truth is your truth, so you know, whatever. Right? man's not the final arbiter in in truth God is therefore we in our relationships it would behoove us to to honor that and to to let him speak and so he governs the trajectory of our relationships and that's for that's for good that's that's for good if man is the final determiner of truth is that a scary thing in your relationships that that's pretty scary because that means that that truth can be molded and manipulated for whatever an individual or a group particularly wants, to the detriment of others. But if God is the final authority in moral truth, then it's to His standards that we that we look, and we'll talk about the good of that here here in a minute. But but as God is the foundation of our moral truth uh, in our relationships, He governs the trajectory of those relationships. But it also frees us from the from the fear of man, right? That that when when God is the standard of our truth, and we can ask Him, Lord, Lord, sift me, sift this situation. Then morality is not just a social construct. That, that those moral decisions can't be manipulated. we can go before God and say god you're the, you're the creator of all things. I' sift what's true here and, and I don't have to be fear I don't have to be fearful in this relationship. What's this person going to think of me if I, if I talk to them about this thing that's going on, or they're saying this one thing and they're doing this thing over here, and I'm seeing that there's a disconnect and it's I've got a burden for them. What are they going to say? They might, they might call me a name or, or, or maybe it risks the friendship. There's, there's freedom there. There's freedom there because ultimately you and they both have to stand before God on the day of judgment give an account for every idle word that you say. Your final authority and your final responsibility is, is to God. And, and if what he has lifted up is good, then speaking to them out of love frees you because you walk, you can walk away with a clean conscience, even if that conversation goes bad. Is, is Lord, I've, I've tried to speak as best I know in truth and love, and I'm, I'm leaving this in your hands. I pray that you'd you'd sustain the relationship or that you'd repair it, but Lord, ultimately, I want what's good for this for this person. So it, it frees you from the fear of man. Now it, it's importantly it's importantly. <laughs> Sometimes I make up words like Alan does. It's important that uh, that we say it's not merely a God, but the God of Scripture. Right? I think that kind of goes without saying, but it's important for us to to recognize that. Because I don't know where you are, but some, some of you may be wrestling with the authority of Scripture. You know, you may be reading things in Scripture that the Lord is bringing to you, and you're like, Lord, I just don't. I struggle with this. Or maybe you're in conversation with somebody at work or a neighbor and they're holding up these things in this in scripture and they're going, Well what about this? Well what about this? What about this? And you're like I just I don't know what to do with that. Have you ever seen the movie the uh the Book of Eli, um it's a very graphic movie, so you know I if you don't don't go thinking that this is something you want to show to your kids. Um but it's a very graphic movie but the the main character played by denzel washington moves through this post-apocalyptic world essentially as a blind man who has uh who has memorized (coughs) the bible and is going to dictate this book uh, dictate the bible to to someone else who at the very end of the movie he's He's dying, sorry, spoiler alert, uh, but he's, he's dictating this book to a man who is then writing it down. And the culture, of course, has now, in this post-apocalyptic um, uh, world, has no you know writings, essentially. And so the book is, uh, um, Eli, who's played by D- Denzel Washington, dictates the Bible, and this man transcribes it, p- binds it, and at the very end of the movie, there's a scene where he takes the book and he puts it on a shelf, Amidst other holy writings and the 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 whole essence of that is in a post apocalyptic world, we need religious writings in order for humanity to regain any sense of humanity that's the whole essence now the interesting thing um, the, the the interesting thing about it is that all of those religious truths so you see all those books that are written there um, all of those religious Writings ground their truths on a God, but they disagree fundamentally about who that God is. And so the God of the Bible has to stand scrutiny over those religious views, which it does. If you press it, it will. It stands uniquely distinct from any of the other religions. Now that's a whole different sermon, of course, but that's important for us to recognize that in in dealing with moral truth, we have to trust the Bible and go to it and say, Lord, I'm struggling with this I'm struggling with this. Well, teach me, Father. Teach me what is open my eyes to the good and goodness of your truth and help me speak this into this relationship or into this situation. Because truth out here as an academic concept is one thing, but it's another thing when y- it has a face. When it's a a a, a mother who has children. And there's a hard situation there. Or a marriage that's in the midst of turmoil and is breaking. When truth meets reality, it's hard. It's humbling. So we we need to trust the Bible. We need to to trust that we can go to it and ask hard questions and it can withstand those. We're only in verse 1, right? <laughs> but that's important. I, I, I really do. I think that that first, that first word, coming to God, is the basis of our foundation for moral truth in our relationships is crucial. Because if we get that wrong or if we miss it, the trajectory of our relationships is just going to go in some other direction. What else does David say? He says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. A modern definition of integrity is, excuse me, adhering to moral or ethical principles biblically it's a little bit more definitive i, I, uh, I believe that it is uprightness um, humility innocence that 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 word that can be translated in in uh, in those other synonyms um, but that's 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 the integrity there is an uprightness there there is a humility there's an innocence there that david is is asking the lord to scrutinize he's saying lord sift me examine me and what is it that he's asking the Lord to examine he says examine in verse three test my mind and my heart what is that that's my thoughts and my desires test my examine my thoughts examine the affections of my heart that's what's under scrutiny and asking the Lord to examine So, so 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 our our allegiance to the to the Lord and and our Trusting in the Lord for our foundation of moral truth comes, comes out in what our thoughts are and what our affections, what our desires are. But at this point, we've got to ask a question. Because what, what is he saying? He says, it, it, as, as Nathan read the whole, that, that, the whole chapter, David is, he's sort of drawing a line in the sand. He says, here's wicked people over here and here's me. Here's wickedness, here's evil, here's me. Lord judge. And so we've got to ask the question, is David boasting in his own self-righteousness? Is he boasting in his own self-righteousness? Because that's a problem, isn't it? Right? I mean, in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable of of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he tells the parable because certain persons who were present with him trusted in their own self-righteousness and viewed others with contempt. And so he points to the Pharisee who, who is in the temple... And he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man over here. I thank you for the righteousness that you've given me so that I'm not like that guy. Is this what David is saying? And I'll answer that in, in in just a second, but let me kind of footnote this, because we're talking about in our relationships, in reality, how does this play out? That that, that there's enough of Christ- of Christianity in the background of uh, of America that that oftentimes when, when we're in conversation with people and we bring something up and hold up a, a, a truth of scripture against someone else that all of a sudden it's, well, you shouldn't judge. Well, who are you in your self-righteousness? Now, there's an element of that that is true. And, we'll, and I'll, I'll point to that here in a second. But that's the way those conversations can often go, and it's a quick just cut the root out from under it and go, oh, oh well, you know, you're right. But our mindset in that is, well, you're right. I don't really have a place to say this, until so we back down. See, pointing someone else to objective truth is unpopular, and oftentimes it casts us in the position of judge. It's unpopular because unfitness is the great sin in our, in our culture isn't it? That, that our culture will affirm that everyone has value but it really struggles to figure out why. Because in a, in a secular worldview that, that, that stems more out of an evo- evolutionary construct than it does out of a, a theistic <laughs> construct, the great elephant in the room is that, th- this, that that secular paradigm provides no basis for what's good other than the fact that it's popular. And if you think that through, that's really, really scary. But back to our virtual reality aspect of it, that the presence of an objective truth, a a reality that that, that morality in our relationships is reality and not a virtual reality, is that that objective truth has to deal with us, not just us dealing with it. So back to the question, is David saying, here's my self-righteousness, here's here's my righteousness, or even here is a righteousness that you have given me, and I'm boasting in this, and I want you to judge all these other people. Is that what David's saying? No. Look at verse four. Verse one, two, and three, he says, test me, Lord, sift me. Here's, here's, Here's me, I want you to examine me. Why? What does he say? He says in verse 4, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I've walked in your truth. And look back at verse 1, because he, he he alludes to this a little bit in verse 1. He says, in the second half of verse 1, he says, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Skip down to verse 11. We'll get to this one a little bit later, but I have to point to it. Verse 11, he says, "But as for me, he's he's coming back to this towards the the same thing towards the end of the of the chapter. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. And what does he say right after that? Redeem me, be gracious to me. Now, I'll touch on those two those two aspects later. But note that those words don't convey any sense of I've got this thing figured out. They are dependent upon God mercy and grace the mercy and grace of god are the basis of david's integrity not his own efforts for good what he says here in verse three for your loving kindness is before my eyes some of your translations may read love which is true Um, but that that aspect of loving kindness parallels what uh what we find in exodus 34. moses if you remember remember exodus remember part of the old testament story moses had gone up on the mountain ten commandments came down Brought them, you know, and the people had uh, had had built the the calf, right? They had they had committed sin against the, s- the first and second commandments. They would fashioned a god in their own image, in a sense. Um, you know, oh, this calf came out of the came out of the fire. It's gold. Let's worship it. You know, what does Moses do? He gets angry. He smashes the ten commandments. You know, goes back up, pleads for the people. God says, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'll cut you two new commandments. Okay, and Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Show me what makes you worthy. And the Lord says, I'll show you my glory. He doesn't do this just phenomenal manifestation of power. You know what he does? He walks before him in a statement of loving kindness. Here's what he says. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Let's stop right there. Lord, what makes you glorious? What makes you worthy is that I'm compassionate, merciful, I'm kind. I reserve loving kindness for thousands. But he goes further. Because our, our culture, let's stop right there. Back to our relations. Our culture is very quick to affirm the kindness of God. Right? God's sort of this loving grandfather that sits up in, in heaven with this cool little knitted sweater and he just, just can't wait to give everybody a hug except they're just walking away from him. But let's go further in how the Lord describes himself. He says, yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Do you catch that? Loving kindness, mercy, graciousness, but he will judge. A hundred percent just. If someone close to you, a spouse, a child, were murdered in cold blood and you saw it, And you go before the court system and all the evidence is laid out clear. This person is guilty. And the judge says, well I see the evidence but you know what, I'm gracious and I'm kind. I'm gonna just let him off the hook. How would you feel? That's not a just judge. Justice has not been done. He may be gracious but he's not just. God is saying I am gracious and I'm just. I'm gracious and I'm just. Now, that mystery of how is a omnipotent, omniscient God 100% gracious and just, that was a mystery that baffled the minds of, his, uh, of the people of God until the cross. And here, So here's David in the midst of his life. Keep in mind, you know, I think it's safe to say this psalm was written after David's incident with Bathsheba, right? He commits murder, he commits idolatry. I mean, you know, all of these things, that these sins that David does, and he still says, I've walked in my integrity. He still says, I've, wa- I've walked in my integrity. And you maybe say, well, you know, he had the sacrificial system, so he's pointing to the sheep and the goats and, you know, those things that, that he did. No, because those things had to be repeated year after year after year. Why? Because sins continued. Sins continued. You had to go continually. One sacrifice wasn't sufficient until the cross when Christ would come, the very Son of God, and God says, what does it take for me to be 100% gracious to hold loving kindness for thousands, millions, and be just? Punish sin wherever it's found. Where is the lying lip? It's got to be paid for. Where's the, where's the adulterous thought? It's got to be taken care of. Where's the, where's the the anger that comes out in the in the brother of fellowship that's created in in God's image? It's got to be dealt with. This is my son on the cross. That's where it's dealt with. That's where I'm just. That's where I'm merciful. I praise the Lord. We have the opportunity to live in a time where we can look back on that. Whereas David only looked forward. So David looks forward well David doesn't trust in his own self righteousness he's trusting in he's trusting in the Lord. Let me get to this with did I skip it sorry. Sorry, I have this in here somewhere, but I feel like now is the time <laughs> to say this. Integrity. Yeah, I think it's important we, we clarify integrity here because a lot of times we think of integrity as, well, this is something I muster up with in myself. No. Integrity for David was not a self-righteousness. It wasn't even a rightness of moral principle. It was fellowship with the Lord. Continual fellowship with the Lord is what David is saying. He's not talking about sinlessness. He's not saying, I am sinless. He's saying, Lord, I've, I have continual fellowship with you. I've continual fellowship with you. And when I sin, I'm broken over it. I confess it before the Lord. I bring it to you. you. You deal with me here, and I bring it before you. And then we move on. And we and we and we and we, and we keep going. I'm walking in close fellowship with you. That's what he means by integrity. That's what he means by integrity. Now, there's implications for that for us. And it raises the question, how do you conduct your relationships with others when it comes to things of moral truth? That, that if you have only a cold academic conception of God, then you'll be viewed as judging people your posture towards them, even if you're not thinking that, your posture towards them is going to be one of judgmentalism. It's just going to bounce right off of them. But if you know God experie- experientially because of his grace and mercy on your life, you can point to things in your life, actual sins that you could say, this was paid for, and this is how the Lord's changed my heart towards it. I'm still wrestling with this. I'm not, I'm not done. He's still working me over on this. I'm still growing in sanctification, but here's where the Lord's grace and mercy is being applied in my life. Then you're going to take up a different posture towards people. You you're, you're going to be more apt to come alongside them in, in in being created as image bearers of God in your humanity rather than to try and take the position of lording over them. Think about this. If if you were diagnosed with cancer, you say you were diagnosed with cancer and you went through the treatments, I don't know. So I know some people in here actually have done that, and you've gone, you went through the treatments, um, and you're on the road to healing. Maybe the cancer's in rem- you know re- in remission, but you're on the road to healing. You approach somebody else, and you know those symptoms because you you dealt with that, and you see those symptoms, and you you come up to, hey buddy, can, can we let's grab lunch? Hey, listen, look, I see this in you. I I I I see the way you you know you you can't breathe right, you know you're struggling here, you get you get agitated with you know with coworker, y- you know y- y- look, y- have you been checked out for for this cancer? I know I know you don't want to hear that that's scary I know I know it, it, you know, but don't ignore it. These symptoms are real man. You know, y- you see how that's different. You you walk alongside someone. You're approaching them from the that position of grace and mercy because the the salve of the gospel's been applied to you. Now there's a responsibility on them to do with that as they will. Just as it is for the person who, uh, you know, who who may have a terminal illness or may have cancer. But it's it postures you differently. Experi knowing God experientially through the cross is is different than just having a head knowledge just having a conceptual knowledge and that fleshes itself out in our relationships how we handle our relationships with other people it also gives us hope when our hearts are weak if if it were our own righteousness that we were boasting in what happens when we don't have it what happens when we're when we sin and and there is no righteousness there if we define our integrity as our own ability to keep the moral law what happens when we don't what happens when we when we're not confident to say Lord sift me when our integrity is based on our fellowship with God and his loving kindness in his grace and all his provision through the cross then then we're we're free to come before him because in, in truth, that tenderness of heart is evidence of his already examining us and, 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 and our seeing that we we don't match up. And there's an area where where we need the Lord to work in our hearts. But it frees us. Remember the story of uh, the woman at the well, or not, I'm sorry, not the woman at the well, woman caught in adultery. Men bring this woman before Jesus and they're gonna stone her. And he writes in the sand. i tell you if I have the opportunity to ask Jesus questions in heaven. I'm going to ask him what did you write? And I I really want to know. you know, Because whatever he wrote it clearly touched the hearts of those men. Because one by one they dropped their stones and they walked away. And Jesus looks up and he asks the woman. He says where are your accusers? And she goes they're gone. And he says neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. God's mercy and grace upon us frees us from fear of that scrutiny but a desire for fellowship with Him. So that's where David grounds his, uh, his integrity. It's in his fellowship with the Lord, in his, in his relationship with God, not in his sinlessness. But then further, verse four and five, when God's asked for his vindication based on on his relationship with the Lord, he now pleads that claim of innocence based off of his relationships. Look at verse four and five. He says, I don't sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now, let's be clear. David is not saying, you gotta stay away from unbelievers. He's not saying, let's build this little society and draw a circle around it, and, and we're we're just completely removed from the world. Or entering in throughout your day, and you see somebody, a coworker, doing something that you know is wrong, and just saying, "Well, I'm not going to speak to them." You know, I got to keep my clothes clean, right? He's not advocating that at all, right? I mean, as we move through the New Testament, we said that's not the pattern for Christianity at all. We're supposed to be lights in the midst of darkness. We're supposed to go and make disciples. Now Jesus did he, he hung out with a rough crowd, right? The the a, and and culture knows this, right? There's a popular uh, country song, right? It says uh, I heard Jesus, he drank wine, uh, I bet he I bet we'd get along just fine. He could calm a storm and heal the blind, I bet he'd understand a heart like mine. What's so the sentiment of that is is well Jesus would just have sympathy, you know, on on me. Which is true, but you find the interesting thing about Christ is when you read him in the Gospels, he hangs out with a rough crowd, for sure. But when he speaks, he speaks to change the hearts of people. He does. Now, here's two truths. Here are two important things for us to remember. One, you're not Jesus. And that you are vulnerable to be carried away by the sins of others. You carry his powerful message, but you're in the process of being redeemed. And so that 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 gives us pause to treat our relationships with wisdom. Okay? Here's my note on integrity. Integrity is not finding fellowship with people who build their hopes on falsehood. Integrity is not fi- is not finding fellowship with people who build their faults their their hopes on falsehood. There's a difference between mingling with 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 the world and having close fellowship with the world. And fellowship is, let me define it because I use that word specifically. Fellowship is allowing someone to enter into the sanctuary of your heart and having influence and having authority there. Being able to speak into it. And you know this, you get into relationships with people, there comes a point where you allow someone into your heart to have influence and and to to, uh, to have authority there, to speak into it, and that shapes who you are. They begin to become influential, and that's not what Paul. Uh, sorry, that's 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 what David is saying. He, he's saying he's saying My, I got to I got to live amidst, um, uh, amidst the w- the world, but I'm not going to have fellowship here. Right, that, that's, that's guarding his relationship with the Lord. Psalm 39, set one says, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. Now let's be, let's be honest, I think we're, we're a little hesitant, because David uses some strong words here, right? Wicked, evil, you know, we're hesitant to label non-Christian friends as wicked or evil, right? And that's probably for good reason. You know, th- th- there's a there's a common grace that we see in people and in ourselves, that again to treat others with an a- with an with an aspect of humility, our sharing in that bond of being image bearers of the Lord. But at the end of the day, we have to call a spade a spade, a sin is a sin. Now, sins have different relational consequences but the Lord puts all sins on the same plate. It's, it's wicked. It's evil. Now, you're going to sit down and have a conversation with somebody about wickedness and evil and sin and what they're doing. You need to define those terms, right? Otherwise, they're gonna, you're going to risk being misunderstood. But this what, what God calls us to do in the midst of our relationships is to be as lights in the midst of darkness to be influential. Isn't that what light is? You walk into a dark room and you turn a light on. It is influential over the darkness rather than the other way around. And so in conducting our relationships with wisdom, we have to ask the question, do I, do I have fellowship with unbelievers in my life? Or, or do, they, do, I, do I allow them to speak into and have authority into the sanctuary of my life where the Lord is king Or do I walk as a light in the midst of darkness? With with the desire daily to say, Lord, there are people in my life that I love and I care for and I want them to know Jesus. And I'm seeing that that, that maybe they don't. And that's hard right now. There's a lot of people who say, I'm a follower, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And you know, you can say that, especially here in the Bible Belt. But then when the rubber meets the road, And we'll go, are you are you a brother or sister in Christ or are you not? Because what I'm seeing is you're saying one thing and you're doing this other thing. You know, to to speak into that. And to come from that posture of experiential grace. This is the whole idea behind church discipline. As, As most of you know, we've gone through this process. And it's a and it's a hard thing. What's our posture towards a person who says a follower of Jesus but I love wickedness and I love evil I want to keep that no 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 we want to see you restored we want to see you reconciled coming from a position of grace please be reconciled it's not a pragmatist it's not a pragmatistic it's not merely pragmatism oh well it's going to hurt someone because it is surely that But further than that, it gets at the essence of who we are. We know who the Lord has created us to be. And the fact that it dishonors God. What did Alan say to the kids? No, God's number one. That's the first commandment. That means he's due the praise. He's due the glory. He's due all of our hoorays. So in our relationships, we don't have fellowship with with (coughs) wickedness. We're lights in the midst of darkness, but when we have fellowship with wickedness, it begins to infiltrate our lives and seeks to drift us away. When Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, don't be carried away by, er, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, by, by, by loose doctrines. He, I don't think he's primarily talking about going to some false church and having a false gospel preached to you. That happens in the midst of relationships, that being drifted, that drifting away is when, is when the world has more of an influence in your heart than the gospel does. So we have to guard against that. Be in the world, but not of the world. In verse six through eight, we'll wrap up here. He says, I, I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. What's he talking about there? He's saying, he's saying I'm, run, I'm running from fellowship with wickedness. I'm running to worship. I'm running to worship. That, there are pro- that the Lord has set in place proper means of worship and comfort and blessing. And David says, I, I'm, I love that. He has a genuine affection for the ordinance of God and sincerity and joy in carrying those out. And obviously, in the Old Testament, that looked different. You had the temple. You had the sacrifices. You had all of those things. In the New Testament, we don't have a temple. right? But the sacrifice is already done. The Lord's Spirit inhabits his people, and we gather like we do this morning to worship him, to fellowship together. When I was in college my freshman year, I was a, a, at a small school that uh, was extremely secular. And, of course, me being from the backwoods, you know, little podunk town in Georgia, um, I, my eyes were open to a lot of things that I was like, wow. Okay, you know, and I was kind of that, you know, that guy that, oh, he's just innocent Austin, you know, he just comes from a backwoods, and it was, and, and I'm, you know, y- many of you I've talked to, you, you've experienced this also in your places of work, too, you know, it's like, oh, well, you you know, you can't hear those types of things, and you know, those those types, oh, you know, it's it's almost as, as if um, dabbling in all of these other moral fluctuations is seen as a rite of passage. And I was just like, okay, you know, and, and the Lord grew me there because he forced me to go to his word and say, Lord, d- you know, wh- what do I do with this? What do I do with th- with these, you know, with these ways of life that I'm seeing? And I, I've been told are contrary to what you, what you say, but I've never actually invested my time in looking at it, you know. And so daily, my first year of college was just a struggle. It was a challenge Relationally because I was being hit with stuff that just continually and people see it They see that look in my eyes, and they're like "Uh uh-huh. Yep. Yep. you're sheltered and I'm like Yeah, I gotta think on that one, you know, yep, okay, you know open a uh, open somebody's college door and you walk in Okay, so let me uh, I gotta think on this, you know, and you know it was a it was a battle It was a battle, but I found I found a an oasis in the midst of that year at a small church called university fellowship that that had was not associated with with the with the school at all and primarily everybody there was probably 30 years my senior but it was such a refreshing time because there was fellowship there there was peace there it was just a time i could just sit and just breathe and the lord has given the local church to us for for means of blessing for means of benefit. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, what a sad, what sad children we would be if we didn't love the dwelling place of our Father. So do you love, do you love the local church? I don't necessarily say this church, you know, but what God has set in place of the local church. Do you love the local church? Do you find fellowship there? Do you find the, the, the blessings that the Lord has given in His Word being doled out amongst His people? I, ho- I hope that if you're a part of Haven Ridge that you're, you experience that. I, uh, I know that's, what, that's a vision that Alan and I have is just to go before the Lord and say, Lord, how have you set this up? What, how can we posture ourselves as a church to just be an open conduit for the blessings that you have ordained? May you make use of the many rooms and faculties of uh, of the the dwelling place of the Lord in his in his body as you would the many rooms of your house. Employ the benefits of the, the local church. Find fellowship there. That's where that that's where we're to open up our hearts to others. Say I'm wrestling with this, I'm really struggling with this. Can you can you help me as a brother in Christ? Can you can you speak wisdom? As a sister in Christ, can you, can you help me navigate through this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't have all the answers, but, but we'll pray together. We'll walk through this. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll walk with you. That's what the Lord has, has given. All right, and the last couple things. One verse nine, uh, nine and 10. Do not take my soul away along with sinners nor my life with men of blood, with bloodshed and whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. So don't take my soul away along with sinners. David had a clear view of the judgment of God, yeah. uh, that at the, at the end of the day, at the end of his life, he'd have to give an account to the Lord. So keep that in mind. That there's a universal need for the gospel for all people. The question in our relationships isn't, how bad does this person need to be in order to need the gospel? It's that, hey, you and me aren't going to make it without it. No, you need it just as much as I do. And then verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. It bears repeating. Once again, our our integrity is based upon the gracious work of God on the cross to redeem us from our sins. I don't know if, when he says redeem me, he says save me. I don't know if he means save me from, you know, from being in prison or, or from this, you know, this bad spot that I'm in. But he uses that word redemption. If you remember back in Ruth, the kinsman redeemer was a crucial theme that we looked at. And we pointed to Christ as the kinsman redeemer who would redeem us. He would, he would pay for, purchase us from the debt of sin that we owe. When we say, Lord, I'm walking in my integrity, I'm leaning on the payment of redemption that Christ paid on the cross for my sins and I'm I'm desiring to walk in fellowship with you. And when we say that and we trust in him his love is is effective in us to grant us eyes to see sin for what it is and grant us new affections. New affections that align with his. And it compels us to love others in truth and dignity. Not to lord over them with, with a Judicial hammer, but to come alongside them with the, the salve of the gospel. And then lastly, verse 12. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregation, I shall bless the Lord. Blessing, that is. He said, the Lord, my, heart, uh, my foot stands in a level place. The heart that puts the light of God's grace before it walks in openness and security sleeps well at night while the wicked heart loves concealment and yet walks in in, a, in an inner turmoil in in a torturous misery. Let me ask you, as we close, where are you this morning? As we looked at this, and, and I don't know everybody's story. I've just assumed that everybody says I'm a Christian as as you sit here this morning look at what david lays out about integrity where are you are you boasting in your own self righteousness are you are you trusting in a in an adherence to good even good that you see in scripture and saying that's what i'm putting my stock in or, are you even saying as the as the pharisees said lord i thank you that i'm not like this person i thank you for the righteousness that you've given me even ascribing to god glory for goodness that you see that's in you that may be legitimate, but it's not what you boast in. Are you you boasting in a legitimate goodness that God has granted to you rather than in the redeeming work of Christ? What about your fellowship? If you examine your heart, is is the Lord saying, look, you've got closer fellowship with the world than you do with me. You're saying that you're light and darkness but darkness is actually having more influence than you uh, on you than the light of the gospel is. What's the Lord speaking to you about your fellowship? Maybe you may, may, maybe you maybe you don't have fellowship with the Lord, but you don't have good fellowship with Christian brothers and sisters. You're on this island out here by yourself really struggling and what you need is to reach out to a brother or sister in Christ and and be relieved and enjoying the benefits that the Lord has given for fellowship. Because don't get me wrong, we need fellowship. The Lord's created us for that. And we need it in the context of other believers to speak into our life. We use the term speaking gospel to one another here at Havenridge. And we need to do that. What about your burden for lost friends? Do you have a burden for, for lost people in your life? Not a desire to win an argument. Trying to figure out how to manipulate a theological game of chess. Is is it a burden for somebody that, this person says that they're a Christian, but there is no fruit in their life that I can lean on? And I don't have it all figured out, but I know enough of the gospel to know that something's not right here. And I fear that they're destined for hell while they think that they're on a highway to heaven. You have a burden for them? to pray and say, Lord, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't have any righteousness within me that's gonna compel this person to to have faith. Father, give me courage. Give me courage to speak into their life that I would be able to speak to their hearts because when you walk away from that conversation, you don't pat yourself on the back and go, hey, that was good. You say, Lord, (laughs) may you be praised because those were not my words. We need that in our relationships. We need that in our conversations. So where are you this morning? Where does the Lord have you in your integrity? I'll leave you with that. I pray that the gospel rests on your soul, that you have, that you, that you have already an experience of God's grace and His mercy. If not, then maybe perhaps today t- today would be the first time. And that daily you would seek to fellowship with him in the midst of Christ. That your relationship would become ever and ever deeper and deeper. I'm gonna pray for us. Um, Alan, protocol for, do you want me to pray for the meal? We had not discussed this clearly. <laughs> yeah, we'll need, we'll need, uh, Tables. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. So I'll pray for us. I'll go ahead and pray for for our meal. And then anybody who you know uh, wants to stay for the meal, certainly please do. Everyone's welcome. Um, and then if we.